Be in chapter 7. Now, if you remember, think back. It's been a while. But uh, we've been kind of going through the book of Acts and discovering how it is that the church is supposed to live and move and, and in essence, have, have our, our being as followers of Jesus and what He wants out of us. And in Acts chapter 7, we, we come to a conclusion of a sermon that has been preached by one of their deacons, a man by the name of Stephen. And we've kind of looked at him a couple times here in the past. He's one of these seven fellows who was selected by the church uh, to take care of the, the Grecian widows to make sure that their needs were being met because somehow the church, can you believe it, was overlooking people? And, and so they, they needed somebody to do this. So he was selected along with other guys. Now these fellows were, they were full of, of wisdom and they were full of the Spirit of God. And it was up to them to, to take the finances that were brought into the church and then to make sure that it was equaled out to meet people's needs. So he had to be one intelligent, so to speak, uh, to think that he could at least handle money issues and he also had to be social enough that he could communicate well with those who were upset with the church and to help ease some of the tensions that were going on. But beyond that, he turns out that Stephen is not only one of these deacons who meets these specific needs, but he's also very evangelistic in his own right. And he's preaching to people, telling them about the gospel message of Jesus, and after, Jesus, after Stephen is chosen to help make sure that they're cared for, the Scripture says in verse 8 of chapter 6, Stephen was full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Now you have to understand, Stephen is one of these, this very elite group of men who have been blessed by God, not only to preach, but in the middle of their preaching, they're able to perform miraculous things that draws attention to the goodness and the greatness of God, and people recognize now that his message has authority with it that is not his own, but it's God's. Now, he's, he's here speaking to a group of people. They were called the freedmen. Because of their, their background in, in, in uh, uh, Roman government, uh, they had either purchased their freedom, they were no longer captive Israelites, but they were free Roman citizens, either because they themselves have done something or maybe family members before them have done something to gain their freedom and the ability to be a citizen. Now we know that there's one individual, and he'll kind of appear here in a little bit, a man by the name of Saul, we know him better as Paul. He had this ability as a citizen of Rome. He was a freedman. Stephen is speaking to these guys that Paul has grown up with, Saul has grown up with, because they're all from Cilicia. And in Cilicia, there's a town called Tarsus, which is where Paul is from. And as he's speaking to them, he's, he's debating with them, and they're not able to cope with his wisdom and his spirit. And they're getting a little upset with him because they're losing in this debate. And when people are losing in debates, they like to play dirty. And that's what these guys did. All right, They couldn't handle his debate, and so they trumped up some false charges about him. And they got a couple guys to say that they were witnesses against Stephen, that he has done some things that are considered wrong within the realm of religion and faith. 
So now he's handed over to the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling authority of, of the people of Israel, almost kind of like our Congress today. And, and he goes before them, and we know what it's like, as we've been watching lately, people going before congressional hearings and trying to explain their misguided events that they've done. All right, And so he's turned over to the Sanhedrin. He's got to explain to them why he's being charged with these accusations of blasphemy. And so he's on trial because he has supposedly spoken against Moses and God. And this court now can have him literally put to death. They could have him whipped. They could have him punished in, in severe ways. And, and, and it's quite a long history goes on over, over, over Israel. And so he begins his defense by explaining to the Sanhedrin their own history of abuse of God's people, the prophets, and those who have spoken on God's behalf through the years. Now, the prophets spoke about a coming Messiah. We know that. We read that as we go through Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Lamech. We understand that Hosea talks about it, Micah. And so they understand the prophets spoke about a coming Messiah. And they're looking forward to the coming of that Messiah and so he wants to identify that this coming Messiah really is Jesus and that they are guilty of the blood of Jesus because they are the ones who had him crucified not too long back as they took him before Pilate and they hung him on a cross there at Calvary. These people are guilty of the blood of Jesus, the blood of Messiah, who had come to speak just as the prophets had promised and the holy law had claimed to, to revere and to defend, but he demonstrates that it has happened throughout history. He started by talking about Joseph and how Joseph had, had been refused and rejected by his brothers, that really the, the visions and the dreams that he were having were really God's idea of setting him up so that he could be their deliverer in their times of trouble. And we know what they did. They beat him, they threw him in a pit, they sold him to a, a passing caravan of Midianites, and they took him into Egypt and sold him off as a slave. He also reminds him about how Moses was rejected by the people and how Moses had come before and raised up even in the house of Pharaoh when all the other little boys had been killed at his age. God had spared him, and, and the people knew that. They knew he was Hebrew. They understood it, but they also knew that he was raised in the house of Pharaoh and he had no connection to them. And yet when he had struck out and tried to stop them from fighting one another... They're like, who, who, who made you our ruler? Who made you the one who take care of us and tell us what to do? You know, are you going to kill us like you did that Egyptian? And they rejected him and he ran and he fled for 40 years. And when he came back, they really didn't want to receive what he had to say. S Stephen continues to point out that now they are the ones who have killed and murdered the righteous one, the Messiah, the one whom God had sent to redeem and to deliver them. And by this time, he's done with his defense. The Sanhedrin now is the one who's on trial for blasphemy. They're the ones who he has pointed out have done things that are wrong. In essence, he says in his sermon, I believe in God, but you kind of have put him in a box. 
You're, you're controlling what He does. And, and you're saying that He can only work in Jerusalem and He cannot work up here in Cilicia. He cannot work outside of the Israelite nation and accept people who are Gentile. You're, you're trying to control what God can and cannot do. He says, I believe in the temple, but if your forefathers hadn't desecrated it with idolatry, it wouldn't have been destroyed. So four things I want us to notice in this passage of Scripture beginning here in verse 40, uh, <clears throat> 44, or 54 through verse 60 of, of Acts chapter 7. The first one is this. Notice how he concludes his sermon. All right? Remember, he's standing before the Sanhedrin, and they have the power to do with him what they will. And he says to them here in verse 51 to 53, You men who are stiff-necked, and uncircumcised in heart and ears, are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as, as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. See, Stephen calls them stiff-necked people. Now, I've had a stiff neck before, but that's because you've, you've done something that have injured it, and now you don't want to move. This is not what he's talking about. He's talking about people who are unwilling to budge on the foundation of what they believe. It reminds me of what is said back in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 1, when... when it's written that a man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. So it's a man who does this to himself. He tightens up himself and he's refusing to budge or turn or look a different way because somebody has tried to correct them. He says, those who have stiffened their neck and have hardened their neck because of reproof, reproof he says, they're suddenly going to be broken beyond remedy. Now, the high court here has been criticized many times, but they just stiffen their necks, and soon within a generation, this court is going to be broken beyond remedy. They can't be fixed. Now, you have to understand, Stephen's not trying to win over this court, wanting them to come along and become Christians at this point. He's not trying to convince them that you need to surrender yourself to Jesus. No, he is. what he is doing is he is confronting them for their sin and accusing them of what they have done to Jesus. He is standing in condemnation against them. Now, not necessarily as individuals, but as the court that oversees Israel who's supposed to lead the people, and instead of leading the people to their Messiah, they are the ones who brought the people against their Messiah and have crucified Him. And so He's preaching against them. And remember back in chapter 4 of Acts when Peter and John went and they stood before the Sanhedrin and they were told, don't do this, don't preach about Jesus. And Peter then accuses them of the same thing that what they have done, that they had, they had in essence, they, had, they, they thought they were walking with God, but Peter boldly told them that they were doing otherwise and, and that they killed Jesus, whom God had raised up, and Jesus was now alive again, even though they had killed him. Stephen now is a little bit harder on the court, and he's blasting them for their sins. Now, 
I don't think judges like it when the people who are criminals in their court turn the court system around on them and try to convict the judge of being sinners as well. You know, I, I, I've seen some court in my life, and when the defendant turns on the judge and says, well, you know, I've known what you've done, and you've done th- that's not a healthy position for the defendant to be in. But in essence, that's where Stephen is. He is now turning the tables on this court, and he's telling them, yeah, you're accusing me of this, but let me accuse you and show you why you are guilty. And so that's what he's doing here. He's demonstrating to them how they have broken the covenant that they had with God themselves, and they are now guilty of sin. And it says in verse 54, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. They are cut to the quick, and they begin gnashing their teeth at him. I mean, do you see the contrast now that's taking place between them and between Stephen? They have been so angered by what he has said, their jaws are clenched, and their teeth are grinding, and they are mad. But listen to what it says in verse 55. But being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen, he gazed intently into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I mean, I mean, they're completely controlled by anger and Stephen is completely controlled by the Spirit. There's quite the contrast of what's taking place. Now, the second thing we need to notice is this. Notice how Stephen explains his vision of heaven. All right, I mean, this is interesting. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God's Messiah, as God's Messiah. Now that's an allusion to Psalm chapter 110, verse 1, a Psalm of David when it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. When David speaks of the Messiah as being seated at the right hand of, of the Lord, he's saying that Christ is to be given a position of great power and great authority, a place of unequaled power and authority and honor and blessing. And Stephen is just simply saying that he's trying to explain in human terms the wonder of what he saw. He is so in awe with this vision that in his excitement, he's beginning to explain to them what he's seeing. And so what we look at here in Acts chapter 7, verse 56, is his explanation. Behold, I see, this, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the throne of God. When Stephen is saying, I see the heavens opened up, he's, he's being this, uh, given a vision of what was usually hidden from us. I can't look up to heaven and go, oh, there he is. I don't know if there's anyone. I've never talked with anybody personally who has said, well, can't you see? I mean, he's right there standing, and now he's moving over, and he's talking with Michael, and he's, I, can't, I don't get that kind of vision. Usually it's veiled, usually it's hidden, usually it's, it's not for our eyesight to behold. But Stephen, as he's just about ready to approach death, he looks up into heaven, he says, oh my goodness, don't you guys see it? I see the heavens open up, and I see the Son of Man standing right there at the throne of God. I see what's taking place. And they're furious with him because of what he has said. It's a situation that gets so tense 
The Sanhedrin is so angry and they're about to explode. And Stephen looks to God. And God says, let me show you the reality of what you're preaching. Now many times in Scripture, we see when men are in trouble, when they're in serious trouble, God opens their eyes to see the wonders of His glory. It happened to Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, we, we see that, that, that he is, is trying to figure out what's, what's going on, and, and, and God's asking if somebody will go before him, and, and God gives him this wonderful vision. And there in, in verse 1 it says, In the year that King Uzziah died... In his death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, with his train of his robe filling the temple. Now, King Uzziah had died. Now, you have to understand, Israel's king was a very powerful, he was a military man who was able to conquer his enemies when they came. And now he's dead, and Israel is going, oh no, now what? And Isaiah is thinking, oh my goodness, Uzziah's dead, we're in for it, we're in trouble. And God says, hold it. Look up here. And there in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah looks and he sees heaven and he sees the throne of God and he sees the robes of God that fill. God is still on the throne. He is still the one in charge. It's not King Uzziah. It is God. So it doesn't matter what's happening in this world. If God is the one in charge, we have to trust that he's going to be the one that's going to see us through whatever difficulties come. And in 2 Kings chapter 6, the king of Aram, he's a neighboring kingdom, and he's been doing his best to infiltrate Israel time and time again, and he's, he's trying to send his armies in, but every time he does, they get whooped. Somehow somebody is giving his battle plans over to the king of Israel, and he doesn't know what's going on. He's beginning to accuse his cabinet and his generals of somebody being a traitor. And they're like, oh, no, 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 it's not us, it's not us. It's, 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 it's Elisha, it's that prophet, it's that man of God over there in Dothan. He's the one that, that God tells all the things that you're thinking about and all your plans. He even telling God what's going on when you're thinking about things in your bedroom. He says, that's it. So he sends his army there to Dothan. He surrounds that city of Dothan where Elisha is at. And listen what it says here in 2 Kings 6, 14 through 16. He sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. Now when the attendant of the man of God, in other words, Elisha's servant, Gehazi, when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and had gone outside, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And a servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha answers him, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. <laughs> Gehazi must have thought Elijah was nuts. All he sees is a great army. That's all he sees. And it's them. And they're about to be destroyed. He didn't see anyone but the king of Aram's army. But like us, all he sees is the physical. Listen to what it says there in verse 17 and 18 of 2 Kings 6. Then Elisha prayed and he said... Lord, I pray, 
Open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people with blindness, I pray. So he struck them with blindness according to the word of the Lord. And then Elisha, after that, takes and he says, as he goes out and he meets the general, he says, Who are you looking for? We're looking for Elijah. Well, follow me. I'll take you to him. And he takes him all the way to the king of Israel and centers him right there in the middle to where the army is surrounded now by the army of Israel. And God opens their eyes. And behold, they realize... Oh, we're in trouble. Few times in life when you are struggling, I mean seriously struggling, and it's in those moments that we don't think God is there with us, you need to pray, God, open my eyes and let me see. Stephen was given this wonderful blessing to see heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the throne of God. When God opened his servant's eyes, Gehazi saw the army of God. And God gave him a glimpse into the spiritual realm. Now, God may not give us the ability to see the angels around us. But we know they are there. So when our circumstances are not good, when it looks like our world is falling apart, God is still seated on His throne and His robe fills the temple and the Son of Man continues to stand at the right hand of the throne of God. We just need to trust Him. The third thing I want us to notice is this. Notice how Stephen brings his sermon to this climactic end. I mean, he just builds it up, and then boom, here it is. In verses 48 through 50, he says, However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is a footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? You see, these words that Stephen speaks out loud would have immediately brought to the minds of every member of the Sanhedrin Jesus' very own words when he had been on trial before them. That same high priest who is there before Stephen right now condemning him of blasphemy, same one who was standing there before Jesus condemning him of his blasphemy, and he says to him in Mark chapter 14 to Jesus, he says, Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God, of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. Did you catch that? Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, they consider this the epitome of blasphemy. And they pronounce a death sentence on Stephen. And they did that to Jesus too. Now as Stephen looks up and he sees Jesus in heaven, he verifies that what Jesus had said was true and it revealed that the Son of Man was truly received what everlasting dominion and kingly rule that was due him. Listen to what it says in Daniel chapter 7. 
Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Daniel says, I kept looking into the night visions and beheld with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and kingdom that all the peoples and nations of men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And it's in those terms that Jesus and Stephen are expressing the fact that he is the Messiah. No wonder the council reacts so violently. Stephen hits the nail on the head with this statement. They were forced now to kill him as well because they either had to kill Stephen or they had to acknowledge the fact that they had killed Jesus and that they were wrong because they had now killed their Messiah. They can't do that, so Stephen has to die. (coughs) And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open. The Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now Stephen uses that term, Son of Man. Now it's used in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament it's only used three times. It's used here in this passage of Scripture, outside of when Jesus talks about Jesus used, that was his favorite term for himself, was the Son of Man. He usually didn't call himself Son of God. He referred to himself as the Son of Man. But in the rest of the New Testament, you're going to find it here in the book of Acts, in this conversation with Stephen before the Sanhedrin. And you're going to find it also in Revelation chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, 14 as well, where Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man. So he's he's the Son of Man, and that, that phrase, it confirms that Jesus is this glorious Messiah that they have been looking forward to having, and that He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Remember what Matthew chapter 28 says? All authority has been given to Him. It's interesting, though, because Stephen has this vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God, but yet in the book of Hebrews, it speaks about Jesus sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. I mean, there's there's this difference. If, If he went to heaven and sat down at the right hand, what's he doing standing up? The idea of him sitting on a throne, indicates to us that his job has been complete. The job of redemption. It's done. He's completed his task in coming to this world and fulfilling what God had desired for him to do, to go to the cross, to be crucified for our sins as a sacrifice, and then to be buried, and then to raise to life. And his resurrection empowers us also to have new life. And so he sits down. I'm done. But here we have this that Stephen says he is standing. And, and, and the contrast to what Luke tells us about sitting at the throne as well, we, we, we see that maybe the fact is that Jesus is now standing to encourage or maybe even to welcome Stephen into heaven. Someone comes to my door and they knock, what do I do? I sit there and yell, it's open, come in, right? No, my wife says, get up, All right? So you, you stand, and you go, and you welcome. And, and Jesus says, I'm standing at the door, and I'm knocking, and if anyone will come, and, 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 and here's my voice, and opens the door, I'm going to come in with you, and you're going you're gonna to eat with me, and I'm going to eat with you, and have this wonderful time. And so here we have this picture. Stephen says, I see him standing. I see him acknowledging what I'm doing and, and readying the fact that I'm about to go where you're about to put me. And, and so he's standing there. 
Now the fourth thing is this. The last thing I think we need to notice is this. that Notice Stephen's last words and really how they kind of push the limits. <laughs> he, he, he has to. Just one more twist is what he's got to do. And, and now because of this, they lose almost all sense of rationality at this point. To them, Jesus is a criminal. And he's crucified on a cross. But Stephen says that Jesus is at God's right side. And this meant that Jesus had the same authority as God. And so in verse 57 and 58, this is what happens. They cry out with a loud voice. They cover their ears and rushed at him in one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city... They began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So the description of this crowd is one of near insanity. They're losing their minds at what he is saying. I mean, they're going nuts over his words. The Greek word that is used here for the word rushed, is used in the story where Jesus saves a man who is demon-possessed. And he takes this legion of demons and he casts them into a herd of pigs. And it's the same word that is used that those pigs ran into the sea and drowned themselves. They rushed into the sea. And here this word is being used that these people are rushing at Stephen and dragging him out of the city. Now, Kittle's Theological Dictionary does a little word study on on, on this word. And the dictionary says this, In the few passages where it occurs, this word rushed, it denotes a violent movement uncontrolled by human reason. These men are literally out of their minds. And it doesn't matter what is going to happen. It doesn't matter if there are consequences for what they're about to do. It doesn't matter if they're following laws that the Roman government's going to be upset about. It doesn't. They have lost it, and they grab him and they drag him out of the city. With cries of anguish, these, these members of the Sanhedrin, they block their ears. They don't want to hear it anymore. They've gnashing their teeth, and it's this symbolic gesture indicating their horror, and they drag him to the street outside the city where they stone him. Now, in spite of their fury, in spite of the anger that is built up within them, these men somehow, they have the audacity to observe some laws. All right? They they understand that, that the Old Testament talks to them about how they should stone people. And in Leviticus 24.14, it says that the execution of stoning had to take place outside the city. So instead of right there in the Sanhedrin, they are literally going to drag him outside the city because we don't want to defile what God had said about that. And in Leviticus 24.16... They understand that they have to identify that the reason for their stoning is blasphemy. Well, they've got that correct. He's blasphemous, so we're going to do that. They'd heard the testimony of two witnesses because they trumped up those charges. And that was required for execution. 
So they're obeying all these things. And then they follow the instructions of how you're supposed to stone. And that's in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 7. And, and there it states that the hand of the witnesses shall first against him, shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterward, a handful of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now in verse 52, Stephen dared to point out to them that they had rejected and they had killed the prophets, and so now they were proceeding to stone him. And they actually, the only actual record of any other prophet being stoned is that of Zechariah, and it's found in Second Chronicles chapter 24, verse 21. And they stoned Zechariah as well. The people didn't want to hear what he had to say because he was a prophet of God and they didn't want to change their ways. The irony now of this whole situation is obvious. They sought to prove that he was wrong by proving that he was right. They stoned the prophets. They killed him, and you're going to do the same thing to me when you hear what I have to say. Sure enough, they do it. And it says they began stoning it. Now the Mishnah, which is the Jewish codification of law, it's, it's outside the, the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. This is their, their grouping of laws as well. It tells us that they would take him outside Jerusalem. Now there's a place that they would throw him off a cliff that had to be at least twice the height of a man, so about 10 feet tall or more, that they would throw him down. And here's the thing, the witness, first witness, would be the one to push him forward face first off this cliff. Now here's the thing, if he were to fall headlong and die, then that was fine. They didn't have to proceed any further. If he doesn't die after falling off that, being pushed off that cliff. The second witness was to take a large stone and to crush it upon his heart. If he still doesn't die, then everybody else in town was supposed to pick up a rock and to begin to pummel him with them until he's dead. This isn't working. They're continuing to stone him. And then it tells us that a witness is laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now he's mentioned not so much because he guarded the coats, but because of what that indicated. It indicates the position of some authority and direct identification with the deed that is being done, but he isn't the one that participates in it. So here we have this picture of this relentless enemy. He's never forgot this moment. And it burns its way into his soul. And so later in the book of Acts, chapter 22, verse 20, Paul now, who has become a Christian, he reminds himself and he speaks of this incident. He says, And when the blood of your, young, of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. Now, Stephen had been arguing with the freedmen of the courts of Cilicia. Knowing that Paul was from Tarsus in Cilicia, and he was one of the Pharisees in their, in their synagogue, and a Pharisee who was now part of the Sanhedrin, potentially Stephen and Paul were having this argument. And the words of Stephen continue to ring in the ears of Paul in his heart. 
And years later, he is still recounting the fact that he was so vicious against the church and against this young man, Stephen. By his authority, he permitted them to kill him. Stephen's death is the only death scene of martyrdom that is described in the New Testament, except for Jesus being killed. And I think we can compare Jesus' own words with the words of Stephen. Jesus said, as he was crying out in a loud voice in Luke 23, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And Stephen was dying just like his Savior. And he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He uses that term Lord very significantly. Throughout his sermon, the Lord meant Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. And now he gives that same title to Jesus. He is no doubt about whom Jesus is. And so in Acts 7.60, as we close out this, this sermon on it, he says, falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Seems obvious to me that he had in mind the, the words of our Savior when he was dying on the cross because he said in Luke 23, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. Father, forgive them. Forgive them for their sins. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen, Father, Lord, forgive them. Don't hold this sin against them. The Czechoslovakian martyr, John Hus. It's a statue in Prague. He was promised safe passage by the Catholic Church to discuss criticisms that he held against them. But they betrayed him and they burned him at the stake. And he died there. But when he died, he did not die cursing them because of their deception, their brutality. Instead, John Huss sang praises to God as his last breath escaped him. If Stephen can die for his Lord like this, confidently, forgiving his enemies, there's got to be something to this Jesus who he says reigns at God's right hand. Second Chronicles 24, Zechariah, he's the son of Jehoiada. While he was being stoned for confronting the sins of the people of Israel, and he breathed his last prayer, this is what he said. Joash the king did not remember the kindness which his father Jehoiada had shown him. But he murdered his son, and as he died, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. Similar circumstances, but a very opposite prayer. Stephen was more like Jesus in his death. What a wonderful illustration we have here of dying grace. It was peaceful death, even though the surroundings and the circumstances were very violent, chaotic. It was a great to imitate his Savior Jesus. So God enables him to see heaven.
like what it says. Falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And having said this, he fell asleep. He fell asleep. I mean, sleep is, is, is a euphemism for death. At least we see that scripturally. Jesus said that about Lazarus. When Lazarus died and he had been buried for four days, his disciples are confused about things that he's dead. And Jesus says, no, he's not dead. Matter of fact, listen to what it says in verse 11 through 14 of John 11. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Well, that's it for Stephen. He's gone. He was fearless in the face of the Sanhedrin, and he boldly confronted them with their sin, and it cost him his life. And in one and a half chapters in the book of Acts, this powerful individual in the church, it's over. A lot of times when the gospel message is preached, its power has the ability to convert lives, to confront sin in the individuals, and to bring salvation to them because they're going to surrender to Him. But sometimes, as in this case, the preacher is put to death. While God blesses some servants with salvation, He also uses some servants for sermons for other purposes, as we see here. But as a result of his death, many more people put their faith and their trust in him. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this way, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with shout, and the voice of the archangel with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. I pray that we can have a faith that is emboldened like Stephen. Willing to stand when opposition arises against the church and against the kingdom of God. And we will speak unhindered the truth about who Jesus is. Even if it means our death. We're going to have an invitation for you. I don't know where you are in life, but I'm telling you, if, if you've never given your life to Christ, 